0: (laughs) Hi, this is uh, Saurabh Joshi from StratPost. I'm here at the Shangri-La Hotel for the Shangri-La Dialogue 2018. I'm here with uh, Ankit Panda, who's the senior editor of The Diplomat. And we're uh, waiting for Prime Minister Modi to arrive to deliver the first keynote address. He's the first Indian Prime Minister... To participate in, to attend the Shangla Dialogue, how consequential is that? Do you think, Ankit?
1: I think this is certainly a big opportunity for Prime Minister Modi. I'm, I'm keen to see if he'll actually seize it and uh, deliver a resounding message that India, contrary to what skeptics have long said, India is a country that is thinking strategically about the future of Asia. Um, I think far too often um, we hear frustrations about. Indian vacillation, um, Indian um, adherence still to non-alignment um, in the 21st century. I think those concerns are a little bit overblown. I think uh, there is a good corpus of evidence um, over the Modi government's four years in office that India is certainly picking sides in uh, on, on several consequential issues and it is picking the side of the United States, um, uh, you know, contrary to a more pan-Asian identity that had prevailed um, in the uh, latter days of the 20th century. Um, so certainly there's an opportunity for Prime Minister Modi to address several themes that are um, quite, quite hot today in, in the Asia-Pacific region.
0: Uh, one of those themes is, is uh, the concept of the Quad. Now, uh, a lot of us have been struggling to understand exactly what that is. Is it a military alliance? Is it an economic alliance? Is it a consultative group? Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Sure, I think it's it's easier. You know, I find it easier to point out what the Quad isn't to people. Um, and a couple of the things that you said actually are things that the Quad certainly isn't. So, it is not a military alliance. It is not even an economic alliance. Um, it is broadly consultative. Um, And I think broadly, the thing that unites the four countries that are members of the Quad, the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, um, is their shared democratic values. So it is certainly a value-based grouping. Um, And of course, an astute listener might notice that three of those countries are allies in bilateral context, U.S.-Japan, U.S.-Australia. Our allies in Australia and Japan have begun to coordinate between themselves, even though they're not formal allies, which leaves India as the odd one out. India, as we know, is famously allergic to the word alliance. Um, and certainly with the Quad, we, we do see a little bit of that playing out as well. So for New Delhi, um, the Quad, I think, is a way to invest in the future of the status quo order in Asia. I think India does worry about what an Asia where China dominates looks like. Um, that is not an Asia that is— um, favorable towards Indian interests, in my view. So, by throwing its weight behind the Quad, um, I think India is making an investment in in preventing that future from coming about. Though we still have to see how the rubber will really hit the road on the
0: Quad. When when the concept of the Quad was uh, was uh, first initiated, uh, al- al- there was some uh, talk about uh, conflating it with, you know, sort of equating it with the Malabar exercise, the the Malabar series of exercises, Uh, Australia, the Australian Navy had been part of it in one edition. Uh, It's not going to be part of it this year as things stand according to public statements. Uh, Why do you think that is?
1: So the Indian position on Australia's participation in Malabar has been consistent over two years now. Malabar was trilateralized in 2015 with Japan becoming a regular participant. And India hasn't been uh, shy about um, showing that Malabar is about some kinds of um, very serious military cooperation. For instance, anti-submarine warfare has been a big component of the trilateral Malabar drills, which is a big step for not only the Indian Navy but the Japanese Navy. To uh, conduct those kinds of exercises in a trilateral context was already a powerful message. With regard to Australia, um, the Indian position has been that the Quad is not a military alliance. So to um, to get things to a point where Malabar becomes effectively quadrilateralized, um, it, it starts to make the Quad look much more like the the seeds, you know, the sapling of of a burgeoning military alliance. Um, and that's not my view. I think that's the the approach that um, many in New Delhi take towards this issue. And at the same time, Australia and India are conducting robust bilateral naval exercises of their own. Um, then there are also some mundane, practical concerns that maybe analysts don't think about as often, uh, such as you know the Indian Ministry of Defense is overworked and um, really you know kind of at its limit, it's, at its uh, limits when it comes to setting up these kinds of complex military exercises. Everything from protocol to uh, what actually goes into making these exercises happen is is quite involved. Uh, so there are some of those considerations um, as well. Now that said, I think uh, for the crowd of analysts uh, in the United States, in Japan, um, who had Um, strongly supported the quad, uh, certainly in its newly revived version, I think quadrilateralizing Malabar was seen as a real low-hanging fruit. Um, So I think we might head towards another period of frustration with India um, over over this move the Australians have been very public about the fact that they were keen to participate so once again India looks like the spoiler the non-ally out of this group of four countries and they've,
0: and they've brought it up several times not just once or twice <laughs> they've mentioned their their willingness their their willingness to participate in Malabar uh, several times over the last few months and uh, uh, there's no change in the Indian position right I
1: think the Australians are certainly um, very much interested I, I think one of the you know one of the arguments that is worth probing though I don't think it's um, a primary motivator for the Indian position is concern about um, how this will reflect on India's relationship with China um, one of the problems in 2007 for the quad um, then for the Manmohan Singh government in India and the Kevin um, Kevin Rudd government in Australia was the appearance of Malabar 2007, which also involved Singapore, um, it was a major exercise, the largest iteration of Malabar to date. Um, it it elicited a démarche from a Hu Jintao's China, you know, a, a much cuddlier China back in the day, um, not the threatening. Um, sort of, you know, artificial island building, China that we know today—the China with a, uh, a naval base in Djibouti, with a regular submarine presence in the Indian Ocean. So, in two thousand and seven, uh, China protested. It said, "You know, why are these democracies coming together and carrying out these military exercises? Uh, it looks like a containment co- coalition." Um, so the Kevin Rudd government got cold feet, pulled back. Um, India at the time was, again, not very in- invested. Um, th- those dynamics are really, I don't think, really at play today. Um, even you know, after the w- w- Wuhan summit between Modi and Xi Jinping and talk of the two leaders coming to an understanding over uh, their bilateral relationship, um, I think you know, India, is, India is still quite clear-headed about, about the value of the Quad. Uh, I think it, it it really is that hesitation uh, in New Delhi to uh, avoid letting this turn into a anything that can be seen as a military alliance. Um, and you know, we also you know we're talking about Australia, but we can also visit you know, the the long-stalled uh, talks between the U.S. and India over the two remaining foundational agreements, the ComCASA, the communications agreement, and the basic exchange agreement. Um, so those remain outstanding, primarily due to similar considerations as well. I think, you know, India needs time for, for many of these issues to uh, to really play out. And I think, you know, China is actually doing a great service here. Um, as long as China keeps on um, conducting itself as it is uh, in the South China Sea and in the Indian Ocean region, I think you know with time, um, New Delhi's uh, decision making will change as well.
0: It's interesting you did not mention Doklam.
1: Well, Doklam is a land-based dispute, so we can talk about that, and it certainly factors into the broader India-China relationship. Um, a lot of the damage that was done by Doklam, I think both sides were eager to bury. Um, that's how we got to that August uh, disengagement ag- agreement, um, and neither government has really been keen to revisit the issue. And uh, if you look at satellite imagery of the Doklam site today, you see something that is shockingly different from what the site looked like before, um, before the standoff. Um, and you know, both sides found a face-saving way out of, of the Doklam crisis. I mean, one of the underexplored aspects of the Doklam dispute That actually, I've been thinking about at the Shangri La dialogue this year uh, after listening to um, comments by um, Ram Madhav and uh, Senior Colonel uh, Joe Bo from the PLA uh, speak uh, is um, the effect of nationalism in both countries. Um, The Doklam standoff was incredible for the level of nationalistic rhetoric we saw in both countries in china you had official state media outlets reminding india of the 1962 war in india you had um you know certain segments that were uh, entirely pulling for a military altercation and um, nationalisms matter for national level decision making Uh, i think we see this more in democratic india than we do in authoritarian china but even in china there is a um, – there is a strong um, impulse for the senior leadership of the Communist Party to respond to those nationalist impulses. So um, Doklam uh, was successfully diffused, but there will be future Doklams. There will be maritime Doklams. Um, and when those come, um, I think both governments will need a serious avenue to be able to successfully um, disengage and, um, and bring tensions back to a, uh, to a workable norm
0: the other concept uh, that was uh, uh, that was sort of new was the 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 idea of indo-pacific now just yesterday uh, the us uh, has renamed their pacific command as the indo-pacific command how consequential is that does it matter does it change anything
1: well, it's it's symbolic, and I don't want to say that symbols don't matter, um, but symbols certainly matter a lot less than uh, you know sustaining naval deployments in the Indian Ocean, for instance, or uh, you know a, a quadrilateralized Malabar. Um, the Indo-Pacific, above all, is a geographic descriptor. Um, it is sometimes conflated with a strategy, um, but it is not so much a strategy as a recognition of, uh, frankly, the crystal clear fact that. There is a unified strategic space in Asia between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and to go back to the issue of the U.S. Uh, Pacific Command now Indo-Pacific Command, um, if you look at a map of U.S. combatant commands, uh, PACOM or Indo-PACOM now uh, has a really uh, strange sort of um, division that goes kind of one third of the way. Uh, you know, you look at the the Gujarat coast of India, the run of Kutch and you draw a line straight down, and you cut the Indian Ocean at about one third. One third of the way there, so that's PACOM's AOR. And then, if you look um, to the west of that, you have Africom's AOR. And then, just up up top near the uh, Arabian Peninsula, you have a tiny bit of CENTCOM AOR, which means um, which makes fleet coordination uh, for the U.S. Navy in in that part of the Indian Ocean. Which, by the way, is not an inconsequential piece of um, you know. Uh, piece of water. I mean, it, it is uh, home to high levels of piracy, um, regular patrols by Chinese attack submarines. Um, China's been conducting more patrols there since its Djibouti base was operationalized. Um, so there is this weird um, incongruence that I see when I just look at a map of U.S. combatant commands. Uh, certainly for India and even for Japan, uh, when I think when India and Japan think about the Indo-Pacific, they certainly take the eastern coast of Africa into account. Um, in fact, uh, the uh, India-Japan-Africa uh, Initiative um, very much makes that a part of um, of its understanding of the strategic space. So I think the development is significant. Uh, it's not going to uh, you know check China's rise or anything like that overnight. Uh, but I think you know it shows that the United States is taking this Indo-Pacific concept more seriously, and that the Indo and that the Indian Ocean is going to be a bigger part of uh, U.S. strategic thinking.
0: The U.S. and India are in the process of scheduling the the two plus two dialog which is uh, the, the foreign ministers and defense ministers meeting sometime in july what's likely to be to be discussed at that in terms of the agenda is it more of a okay let's try and try this all over again and get to know each other all over again. You have a new Secretary of State. uh, And this has been rescheduled. It was supposed to happen in April, now it's happening in July, because things have changed since then.
1: Things have changed. I think the U.S.-India defense relationship, though, has mostly been defined by continuity. There are longstanding topics of discussion. I think on the Indian side, um, I think cashing the checks that were written by the Obama administration when India was declared a major defense partner continues to be an important part of the agenda. Um, New Delhi is is trying to um, see what is and isn't possible under that description, um, under that designation, which is bespoke for India. Um, it's effectively major non nato ally status, but not called that, so India doesn't you know have to be called the same thing that Pakistan gets called sometimes by the United States. Um, so certainly, I think on the Indian side, uh, you know, technology transfer, um, th- those issues will be at the forefront. On the U.S. side, uh, you know, I expect the issue of the foundational agreements to come back to the table and um, talk of the Indo-Pacific uh, to feature prominently as well.
0: So President Trump's uh, style of functioning is widely perceived to be fairly transactional, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so you have uh, recent uh, instances where uh, the government of India did not approve of the move of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. Then after that, uh, the government of India issued a statement saying that uh, they do not believe in unilateral sanctions while referring to uh, the Iran, Iranian nuclear deal. So those things are there. I mean, India has made it a point to portray uh, a, an independent and principled stand on, the, on these issues. Uh, is this going to be a problem?
1: It depends. First of all, I don't think Trump necessarily knows that those are Indian positions. Um, the, you know, it would require a very, you know, Fox News would have to maybe run with a headline that says, you know, India opposes unilateral sanctions, which I think is, you know, doubtful that will happen. So that's one small saving grace, but that's obviously not something to build a successful bilateral relationship off of. So, yes, you're absolutely right that the transactional nature of Trump, uh, you know, Trump looks at US allies and he asks his advisors, you know, what does South Korea do for us? What does Japan do for us? What does the Philippines do for us? And that very same question is asked of India, and India is not a U.S. ally. So India does a lot less for the United States um, in a way that I think Trump's advisors would be hard pressed to explain to Trump. You know why India matters. You know the all the rhetoric that we hear at. High level US India diplomatic interactions, you know, the world's oldest democracy, largest democracy. Um, that really doesn't matter um, for Donald Trump. Um, and India, again, has a trade deficit with the United States. It's been placed on the list of countries that are going to receive specific t- scrutiny from uh, the US trade representative over trade practices. So H- there are
0: H1Bs.
1: H1B visas, exactly. There are a lot of pressure points in this relationship that previous administrations have been able to deal with um, because they recognize that India, um, looking at the future of Asia and looking at the future of the U.S. role in Asia, India is an indispensable partner for the United States. Um, they are simply no way that I think uh, Trump's advisors can communicate those um, those topics. And I think really since you know the U.S. and India made up after the 1998 nuclear tests and the sanctions has been kind of a long-running thread uh, between um, George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Um, both presidents understood that. So that is the question right now, and I think um, you know both sides have been skilled at helping the relationship allied those issues. For example, uh, Prime Minister Modi's trip to Washington in uh, 2017 was was largely successful as a result of that. India even made an announcement about North Korea saying it would cut back on trade, which I think satisfied, you know, uh, Trump saw India as playing ball on the maximum pressure campaign, which really helped. Um, but, you know, these are um, these are serious lingering issues, and they could really um, blow up at any moment. Uh, it, it, it really depends on how the president is thinking about the agenda with India, and he's a very difficult man to predict
0: is there anything that the government of india can do to help with the situation and you know help with answers to the question what does india do for us
1: well there is you know there is a way for the government to answer that um, but i'm afraid that you know on on some very specific issues uh, we do run into questions of of national interest right i think um, the immigration issue, the trade issue, um, those are issues where India's national interests are simply in a, a, you know, have been consistently such that the United States has, you know, had hard, you know, had to swallow some bitter pills that that Trump is not eager to uh, swallow. And I think the Indian government is going to have trouble framing those issues in a way that looks positive to Trump. For India, I mean, really the big way is to um, emphasize how India can be a partner in balancing China. Uh, the one saving grace for India and Asia is that Trump dislikes China more than he dislikes India. Um, so uh, if, if New Delhi can use that to its advantage um, in, in you know very high-level bilateral interactions, uh, then that's one thing. Um, but really, I think it's in India's best interest to keep the U.S.-India relationship um, running smoothly, because this is a relationship that has been largely defined by a continuity, like I said, since uh, roughly 2000. Um, so, keeping that continuity alive uh, through the levels of um, senior ministers and secretaries of state, defense, uh, even the Treasury, um, keeping the relationship running on that level can be advantageous without bringing the President of the United States into it necessarily.
0: Okay. So uh, during the Obama administration, there was a sense that the two countries have come to have a fairly common understanding of where they would like to see the world two decades, three decades from now. Uh, they may disagree on how to get there, but they have a common understanding of you know this is how things should be. Uh, do you think that's still the case?
1: Well, again, I think it depends. If uh, you know, you showed the Indian cabinet uh, the U.S. national security strategy released in December two thousand seventeen, the national defense strategy document, um, a lot of the strategic communications coming out of the Defense Department about the rules-based order. India sees a lot to like in that. Um, and certainly you know, an Asia dominated by China 20, 30, 40 years down the line is not an Asia that is in India's favor. So there's that. But then you have the nationalist president of the United States and his America First strategy, which um, obviously India does not um, see any reason to, to support an America First agenda. Um, so it is, again, this sort of um, you know, dissociative identity that the United States can bring to the table. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, you know the, the people-to-people linkages between the two countries, the, um, the immigration flow from India to the United States, all of these issues are obviously discounted under an America First strategy. Um, so when, when India does think about the future of Asia and it sees some of what the Trump administration is putting out on paper, things look good. But then when you uh, really get into what the, you know, what the president means um, and what some of his closest advisors mean when they talk about America first, I think there's a lot to dislike there for India.
0: And Finally, I wanted to talk to you about uh, some of these other peripheral issues which, which, which come up because of uh, really third-party situations. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the proposed U.S. sanctions on Russia. And uh, now India is planning to, to acquire S-400 missile air defense systems. How does India manage this with the U.S.? And the same question with uh, Iran, really, Iran for Iranian oil, really. Uh, Indian oil companies have yesterday announced mm-hmm. that they're going to suspend the uh, acquisition of oil from Iran until this, this business is sorted out. Yeah.
1: Um, So the S-400 example, I think, is a little bit easier to deal with because I think India can win itself an exception. Something India has been very skilled at doing with the United States is uh, getting itself treated as an exception. Um, So certainly that was the case on the nonproliferation agenda. India has the distinction of being effectively a nuclear weapon state outside of the nuclear nonproliferation treaty. For all intents and purposes, recognized by the United States, the two countries have a civil uh, nuclear cooperation agreement. Um, India won an NSG waiver in two thousand and eight, with the United States supporting it. Uh, so, India and you know, like I said, the major defense partner thing is an entirely bespoke designation for India. So, India has done a pretty good job for itself in terms of uh, getting Washington to treat it um, as an exception. Um, and you know, we do talk about India having picked sides in the uh, you know the future of Asia between China and the United States. But India does have many legacy systems to support, uh, you know, old Soviet systems, and they need parts and support from Russian enterprises. Um, and yes, the United States does have these sanctions, but I think India will be able to uh, finagle a uh, an exception for itself. The Iran issue, I think, is trickier um, because uh, if the United States unilaterally imposes sanctions on Iran, the objective is to cause the Iranian regime pain. Um, and India can. Significantly, um, I think assuage a lot of that pain. I mean, um, obviously the European allies that the United States have um, are also significant, but India, as a major um, importer of energy from Iran, can can really help take the edge off there. So I'm I'm less um, optimistic that India will find a way to uh, you know do business with Iran after uh, unilateral U.S. sanctions go into place. But uh, you know, that situation is still quite fluid. So um, if India does uh, you know, come out strongly in support of the continuing functioning of the JCPOA, right, I mean, to date, India has said it doesn't support unilateral sanctions. It hasn't quite it's, – it's picked its words carefully on the Trump administration's JCPOA decision. So um, that's, I think, something to watch
0: for. Ankit, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Absolute pleasure. Anytime.